Welcome to Contributor Wednesday on Bridge the Gap Network. In this series, you'll hear from thought leaders on a variety of topics dedicated to inform, educate, and influence the senior living industry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bridge the Gap Contributor Wednesdays. My name is James Lee, and I am so grateful to have had this platform uh, this year and to have been a part of this group of the Contributor Wednesday series. Just got to stop for a moment and say thank you to Josh and Lucas and Sarah and the whole team at BTG for inviting me uh, and others to participate in this uh, this year. I thought the experiment uh, was a resounding success, and I think uh, Josh and Lucas speak to that, uh, n- not from a uh, uh, just a numbers or, or listener perspective or download perspective, uh, but really it's a success any time that an idea that you have to educate uh, and influence and inform people in the space that you're in echoes, and it has a next level, and it has other people who choose to do that. And so from that perspective, uh, I've just, it's been a privilege to be a part of this, uh, this initial group of contributors. And uh, in this final episode, this is a special episode in that it is a two-part episode. So we're going to have today's, and then next week, uh, same time, same day, we're going to have the release of part two. So I get to end the year with you with a two-part episode, and I'm thrilled to know that this contributor series is going to continue with a new class next year. And uh, by the time this episode airs, we um, may already know who those people are. I'm not sure. We, we record these um, pretty early. Uh, but I, I, I am really looking forward to hearing who those uh, voices are. Uh, and again, thanks to the BTG team for inviting others to be a part of it. Today, I wanted to talk to you about something very near and dear to my heart, um, I started this six to seven part Contributor Wednesday series with the intent of talking about um, organizational psychology, and really as as a subset of that, organizational culture, uh, leadership values, leadership skills, and so you know we went through a a whole bunch of different topics through the course of this series, and I want to end where I intended uh, and start. Um, or and where I started. And that's to talk about um, leadership. Because at the end of the day, this thing that we do, you know, which is to serve seniors and to serve the people uh, who are working in this industry, it comes down to leadership. How well are we doing at an individual leadership basis? We can talk about organizational culture and companies and psychology of organizations all day long. But really, it begins with the heart of a single leader. One leader, and then the next, and then a group of leaders. And then it just kind of cascades from there. But it starts with one person. So, as we end this series, uh, for me, I wanted to talk about the individual leader. And I don't know why, but this this phrase just kind of kept appearing in my notes. And so, um, it's maybe not an elegant title, but this episode, both parts, is entitled How to Not Suck as a Boss. Um, I've had a lot of great bosses. I've had some bosses that, um, you know, maybe we're not going to send each other Christmas cards, but I learned something from them. And at the end of the day, I do respect them. Um, I have been a boss to 
other people. I'm a boss to people now. And not everybody's going to love me and get me and respect me as a boss. Some people will. Um, and that's okay. I will, I'll never, you know, bat a hundred on this. But I try. I endeavor. And that's the point. So, <clears throat> as weird as that title is, uh, this is about how to not suck as a boss. There, there's a kind of a two-part answer to that. Um, I've long subscribed to the idea that a, a really effective leader is going to be well-balanced and well-versed in two kind of critical areas. And it's divided pretty equally that you have to have kind of dexterity between, between both. The first is emotional intelligence, and the second is what I call business intelligence. Now, both of those terms and phrases by themselves represent, I'm, I'm sure, you know, schools of thought and, and, and other thought leaders who have, who have spoken on that. So I'll expand on what I mean by that. Emotional intelligence and business intelligence, you know, you can call it left brain, right brain, you can call it soft skills, hard skills. Um, a lot of people think about it in different ways. But at the end of the day, it's about harmony. It's about the the, the work between the two when, you know, when you kind of go to that left brain side, when you go to the right brain side, um, I think, I think leaders who go too far in one, uh, really just kind of cap themselves. There's a ceiling of, of effectiveness and, and it takes a lot of effort to go and build the other skill set in particular. All of us are going to kind of default to one position. We're either just going to be kind of good at people, you know, processes, we're going to be good at relationships, and we may not put a lot of focus into the business stuff, or the opposite is true. We are probably uh, wizards when it comes to analyzing performance and looking at financial statements, and um, dry as a bone when it comes to the personal um, relationship side. There are skills within both, and I think that an effective leader is going to be very proactive in strengthening both sides. So today's episode is about emotional intelligence, and next week's episode, uh, which will air one week from today, is going to be on the business intelligence side. So, why am I starting with emotional intelligence? Because I happen to think that that is actually the multiplier. I know earlier I said it's kind of equal parts, half and half, and that's true that you know you want to spend 50% of your time kind of building out emotional intelligence skill sets and 50% of the time building out your business savvy, your business acumen. However, um, equal does not mean equal in this particular case. Emotional intelligence is a multiplier in that whatever skill set you have here multiplies the total uh, effect of your leadership. And uh, I, I saw this article, I, I wish I had written down kind of the author or, or who shared it, uh, but I guess it, it, in a way I want to uh, share that it's not my own thought, but it, it directly kind of comes off of this um, image that I saw. And, and, and basically, it, it, the, the infographic talked about the, um, the impact of warmth versus intelligence. Uh, and that the order in which a new leader kind of presents those two really, uh, really, really matters uh, in the way that they're perceived. Um, it's I, I think it's called connect then lead, and connect then lead means you got to show the warmth before you show your competence. Um, the warmth 
it's uh, it you know there there are two ways that people are going to judge you. Uh, one is can I trust this person, and then the second is can I respect this person. The trust this person comes from warmth, and I think that's talking about emotional intelligence. It's the ability to read and perceive your own emotions and the emotions of other people, and then to kind of factor that in in the way that you make decisions. So can I trust this person has to do with warmth? Do I like this person? Do I trust uh, their intention? The second part of it is can I respect this person? And that comes from competence. That comes from your know-how. You know, this this is a, I think, a very sensitive uh, topic uh, for me because I I've stepped in it in both ways, you know, and and in not in not good um, perspectives. I mean that, <clears throat> excuse me. This this is an area where I've definitely kind of screwed up, uh, but it's also where I've learned the most. Um, I look back on my leadership history and I think, how is it possible that I um, you know, for the most part, feel like I act and behave and in, in very consistent ways from uh, this role to the previous role to the previous role. Um, but across all of that, despite my, my feeling of consistency in actions and behavior, I have been perceived very differently, um, pre- pretty widely. That, that, that reaction is pretty wide. There are some people that just really, really love me. They reach out to me. They respect me. And then there's other people uh, from the same position, from the same era of, of time that feel like, thank God I don't work with him anymore. Um, and which is true? Which, which is the true me? And I think the answer is it's not about me. The truth is in the perception that the other person had. Um, you know, my leadership is, is somewhat owned on, on my end and it's somewhat owned on the receiver's end. So... I think when I look back on it, though, that there were times that I probably pressed too far on the competence side and not enough on the warmth. And in particular, I did it in the wrong order. So when, when leaders are introduced to a new group, I think there's a lot of just kind of self-doubt and uh, insecurities, particularly when you're a leader in a role for the first time, meaning that's the first time you've served in that kind of promoted uh, role of responsibility, I think we tend to lead with competence. We tend to lead with, hey, I'm smart. I deserve to be in this seat. I deserve to be in this room. And here are all of the reasons why. And maybe subconsciously, we project that. We project, here's all the stuff I know. So will you please respect me? Um, and we bypass you know, the warmth part. I think we sometimes wrongly assume that if people uh, respect me because of my competence, then they'll get the warmth side after that. Um, you know, it's 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 a uh, false cadence. It's it's the wrong way uh, to go about that. And and I'm speaking from personal experience here. I've really kind of stepped in it uh, in the past. Uh, I probably still do it now uh, when I int- when I'm introduced to new people in particular. So. This is where kind of uh, the thought of emotional intelligence um, in, in terms of this, this episode uh, came from, was this idea that if you connect first with people, and that's the EI, emotional intelligence side, your leadership is going to be a gift to other people. It's going to be a source of uh, reassurance rather than a source of threatened, feeling threatened. 
So um, again, your leadership is a gift to others when you do it this way uh, and not a threat to them. So let's dig in. The topic of emotional intelligence, um, I, I don't know its entire history, but I believe from, from what I've read that um, the, the term, the phrase itself, emotional intelligence, uh, was, was kind of brought to prominence by an article and by the work of Daniel Goldman. Uh, back in, uh, I think, the mid-90s, he uh, published an article in Harvard Business Review, and I don't think he was the first person to coin the phrase. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, listeners may, may actually know that. Um, and, and please comment on that. Uh, but I believe uh, the work that he did, though, um, kind of brought that idea into prominence, emotional intelligence. And so the way that uh, Daniel Goldman uh, divides up those, those five kind of main constructs of EI is one, self-awareness, two, self-regulation, three, social skill, four, empathy, and five, motivation. So um, my episode today is not going to go into those five, but, I, but they're definitely informed by those five. Self-awareness is, is really about, do you know your own emotions? Can you label them? Do you know your own strengths, your own uh, values? And can you label them with specificity? Um, not just I'm angry or sad or I'm happy, uh, but can you can you take happy, for example, and be able to really, really define specifically, am I feeling content? Am I feeling confident? Am I feeling uh, thankful? You know, there, there are various kind of levels and degrees of happiness uh, or feeling ha- of happy. And emotional intelligence means that you have a really wide emotional vocabulary. You can really pinpoint how you're feeling. So you're not just feeling anxious, you're feeling uh, vulnerable or cautious or, or nervous. Um, so the, the better you can label that, the better you can really be self-aware. That's the first part. Second part, once you're self-aware, then you can self-regulate. And self-regulating is controlling or redirecting, uh, in particular, your disruptive emotions and your disruptive impulses. And so, in in simpler terms, here's what self-regulation feels like, or here's what not uh, self-regulation feels like. When somebody attacks you verbally, uh, when they attack your integrity, when they attack your work, Deserved, not deserved, doesn't matter. But when somebody kind of comes at you and says, James, what the heck, heck is this about? Um, this, this is sloppy work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully, you're not having too many people talk to you that way. Um, but if, they, if you've been in that situation, that kind of fight or flight impulse, right, com- comes in. You get angry, you say things, you start you know, mentally typing that email in your head that, oh my God, I got something I'm going to say. And some people say it. Um, That's not good. Some people just kind of react and and say, well, you know, how dare you? And then fill in the blank. The opposite is also not good, holding it in, not being able to express it, not being able to kind of redirect that energy. But self-regulation is, uh, if you don't have good self-regulation skills, here's the conversation you have with yourself at, at some point. Dang it, why did I react that way? I know that gets me in trouble, but I just, uh, I can't help that side of me. And uh, okay, I just need to avoid that situation in the future. 
That's what it sounds like. That's what that self-conversation sounds like if you're not good at this part, self-regulation. Self-regulation, when you uh, acquire and build and, and refine that skill, it means that you're always in control of that uh, disruptive emotion um, and that you're able to redirect the impulses. It doesn't mean hold it in. It doesn't mean uh, be a doormat. It just means that other people cannot push your buttons. You know, they can try, but you will always be able to control how uh, you react to others' emotions. Third is social skills. So these, these kind, of, kind of layer on top of each other. You have to start with self-awareness, and then you build to self-regulation. And then from there, I think you move into the, the other parts of uh, social relationship management. Social skills is about the awareness of other people's emotions. And if you have that um, emotional vocabulary, you're also able to very um, uh, kind of succinctly describe what emotion are they feeling. So again, they're not feeling hurt, they're feeling jealous, right? And, and not in a, not a judgmental, like, oh, they're just jealous, but you can recognize, ah, these are feelings of jealousy, these are feelings of discontent, these are feelings of uh, feeling rejected, and uh, here's how I kind of um, circle back on that. Fourth is empathy. There's, there's probably many, many, many podcast episodes about empathy in itself, uh, but this is considering other people's feelings, uh, especially when you're making decisions. So empathy is not just seeing it from the other person's perspective, uh, but it's being able to proactively adopt that perspective. Uh, it's being able to kind of think through what emotion uh, will this incur? What, what's the emotion that's likely uh, to be the response here? And how do I adjust for that uh, even before I speak? I think that is incredible emotional intelligence, is knowing, hey, you know what, Bob t- typically responds with fear on this. Uh, he's going to respond with a feeling of uh, inadequacy on his own part. He's going to kind of spiral from there. All right, so let me, let me think through um, how I approach this with warmth. Let me build my relationship with him and, and strengthen uh, some of the feelings that he has about himself and his work. And then I really do need to talk about it, this, uh, this thing with him, uh, but here's how I'm going to do that, right? Um, all of those things matter. So the ability to consider other people's feelings, especially when it comes to making decisions, I think that's empathy in a, in a professional uh, perspective. Five is motivation. Um, it's, it's understanding what, what truly motivates you, what really, really gets you up in the morning, um, why you log into Zoom, why you answer those emails, why you sign up for the work every single day. Um, your motivation, it's, it's, it's the engine for your work. And, you know, I think particularly in senior living, um, we almost assume that the motivation is um, that you want to enrich the lives of seniors, you want to improve, you know, the quality of life for older adults. And that's not necessarily what I mean by motivation. Um, I think that has become a kind of a casual talking point. Not that, not that I think people don't believe it. I just think that it's something that we have kind of, um, we've made bland uh, because of our overuse of that as, as a motivating behavior. Um, I mean motivation in terms of 
why do I work so hard? Well, I work hard because I want to make my family proud. Why is that important to me? Um, because I came from humble beginnings and I didn't know that I'd make it very far. Well, why did that fear exist? You know, and, and it's being able to kind of go back and back and back into the very core center layer of that onion and to be able to understand, ah, I'm motivated partly because uh, of, you know, I, I, I want to prove to myself that I've risen above my, uh, my humble beginnings and that I've gotten into a position that I'm able to influence other self-perception. Ah, that is motivation. Um, that's an example of motivation. What is not an example of motivation is um, I uh, am motivated to do the best work and the and to produce the best quality work of anyone, and I'm going to work hard to get there. Mm, that's okay. That's a good starting point. But you got to dig further, and the shovel that you're going to use is the question, "Why?" I like that. I didn't prepare that statement, but sometimes I just I just like something that comes out of my mouth, and that's one of them. The shovel that you're going to use to dig deep into yourself is the question, "Why?" Okay, so those are the components uh, of the, the, the constructs of emotional intelligence. Now I'm going to zip through some of the things that I think uh, you should be thinking of if you want to not suck as a boss. Okay, number one. I don't know if these are rules or categories, but I like to list things. So here's number one. How to not suck as a boss. Number one, know thyself. Know yourself. Um. Again, that's kind of grounded in some of this, uh, some of what I just talked about in terms of the emotional intelligence uh, components of it. Know thyself. It's it's first, it's foremost, and it's final. It starts here, it goes through here, and it ends here. The more that you understand and know yourself, the better leader you're going to be. You are going to suck as a boss if you focus all of your attention and energy on somebody else's strengths and weaknesses. That's not leadership. That's just, I don't know, that, that, that's a bad version of uh, supervisory bossness that um, I think we need to go ahead and kill and bury in 2020. Let's, let's not revive it for 2021. Leadership is not about what you recognize in other people. It is first and foremost about what you recognize in yourself. Know thyself. Leadership, um, I think about it this way. In the wild. Uh, there's the alpha animal, right? There's the alpha male, typically in a in a pack of wolves, um, you know. And, and in the business world, thankfully, it doesn't have to be the alpha male. It does, it's just the alpha person. The alpha um, kind of uh, person in the in the pack of wolves, let's say, they get some privileges. Sure, yeah, maybe they're the first to eat. Uh, maybe they. Um, rest while they're, while people hunt for for the animal. Um, you know, the we we've seen enough nature shows that we we know that that happens. If you look at lions, lionesses are the ones who go out and hunt, and then the big bad alpha male lion, you know, comes along and he's the first to eat. Um, so, but but why does that happen? Why does that privilege get to uh, that leader? Well. If you, if you watch enough uh, nature documentaries, you also know that when there is threat to the group, when there's a threat to the pride of lions, when there's a threat to the pack of wolves, the first, uh, the instinctual response by the pack, by the group, is going to be that alpha male is going to go defend the group, right? 
And I think that's a really beautiful kind of analogy of leadership. Leadership is not about the privileges. People are willing to give up certain things and give you that privilege. And in, and in human terms, that means uh, privilege of the position, the pay, the, the corner office, whatever it may be, the esteem. Like These are things that you're going to be uh, privileged with, uh, and others are going to give up a little bit on their own, right? Just by nature of you know the 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 way that we have um, um, constructs of of leadership in 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 our world, leaders of prominence, leaders of esteem, all of those things, and I'm willing to give up a little bit of that. I'm willing to give up spotlight to myself because you are protecting me when it counts, right? The responsibility of leader. Uh, is to protect the pack. And I think a lot of people forget that. The, the, the strength that you have is not for yourself. It is for other people. So you have to know your strengths. You have to know your weaknesses. You have to work on all of that if you hope to be an effective leader. And in 2020, I think that was uh, really, really brought to the forefront. That great leadership isn't just about, here's where we're going, here's how we adjust to it. It is first and foremost about uh, knowing yourself and that your role is to protect other people in, in times of danger. And there was a lot of times of danger this year. Knowing yourself also, it allows you to to kind of control and redirect, uh, again, your disruptive emotions. Um, if you're a boss and you know that you kind of uh, have an emotional reaction to something first, you kind of calm down and then you kind of you know, um, you you approach that situation more calmly the second time around. Well, it's your responsibility to go um, to do it right the first time, right? It's your responsibility to know if you tend to to, to react very negatively to something, um, and then you just kind of blow up uh, at the other person, and then you back off. You you know you always do that. You always kind of back off, um, but you know the, the the harm is in the first part, not the second. So. Your ability to control and redirect your impulses, um, particularly your negative emotions, is going to really be helpful if you want to build long-term trust within your group. Again, people are going to judge you not based on how much do you know, but do you care? Do you care about me? Your warmth over your competence. Um, So knowing yourself is a big part of not sucking as a boss. Number two, get awesome at putting a team together. Get really, really good at that. So if you know yourself, you know, you know what you want to do, you know your vision, you know your, your, your motivation, now you got to put an awesome team together. Putting an awesome team together is, is more than just hiring for the right person. Sometimes it's firing the wrong person. Uh, but I think when you think about putting an awesome team together, a lot of people think that they need a hire for culture fit. In fact, I've been a part of many conversations in the past where people will ask, okay, this person has experience, but are they a culture fit? Are they a culture fit? Do they think like us? Um, and I've certainly you know, been kind of back and forth on that bandwagon, but I think I'm firmly on the side of we don't hire for a culture fit. We shouldn't hire for a culture fit. We should hire for a culture complementary um, fit, <laughs> if that makes sense. But basically, uh, what, what it is is that if you hire for culture fit, you're, you're basically embedding more groupthink. 
you're just embedding that that kind of ah, this person thinks the same way as we do. Ah, they they think the problem that we're addressing is the right problem to address. Great, let's bring them on board. And and the idea is that it's going to speed your team up to to work because ah, they think like us. They've been trained like us. They they view the problems the same way as us. We're going to keep marching in the right direction. But it just it just again it invites groupthink uh, into your team. When you hire for culture complements, you're going to fill the gaps that's that's missing in your culture. And every culture is always missing something. Culture is constantly evolving. It's constantly moving. If there was an if there was kind of an image I have uh, of of culture, it's like if you have a bucket of water and you put uh, drops of food coloring into that bucket. That that movement of color throughout the water. I think that's how I view culture. It's never static. It's always moving. If you add more water in, it's gonna it's gonna move the dye around, and then you're gonna need more dye. Um, so I think when people hire for culture fit, you assume that 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 color that dye that's in uh, the organization is static. It never moves. It's this is what it is now and forever. Um, and other people just better adopt it and, and get on board. But think about how difficult that would be or has been for people this year in 2020. If you did not have people who thought differently, who didn't challenge the status quo within your own organization and within your own leadership circle, if you didn't have other people to flex muscles that you don't have, then then you probably have hired for culture fit too much. Um Fill the gaps. Know what your culture aspires to be and, and hire the people who complement the culture. It is the job of the leader to make sure that you are really, you're, all you are is the ambassador to culture. You are not the protector of it. You are not the librarian who grants access to, to the books within your culture. You are you're a curator of that museum. You invite people in to change it. You may have an idea and a vision of what that uh, that museum exhibit is going to be, but other artists, other people have to contribute to it. So that's the job of a leader. And the last thing I'll say about you know putting an awesome team together is that be quick to fire. There, there's nothing that uh, demotivates good people more than having to work with people that everybody knows is just killing the culture. And they're, they're not looking at that person. They're looking at the leader. They're looking at the leader that allows that to happen. I think we've all been a part of teams where, you know, and maybe it's not even the underperformer. Maybe they're performing well. But they again, they have social capital within your group. And the leader who allows that person with social capital um, to, to stay in the group that is really hurting the group, they're, the culture killers are cancer on your team. And the leader has to cut it out. They have to get rid of that person. Um, you know, we, we value decisiveness in leadership, uh, but oftentimes leaders are not decisive in this area. And it's not about disrespecting the person, right? It's not about going to the person and saying, Bob, you're fired. Um, and by the way, I don't know why I use the name Bob uh, in so many situations like this. I don't know a Bob, uh, and I don't have bad experiences with a Bob. But anyway, that that was a weird kind of aside. Uh, but if a, if as a boss you allow that person to stay on the team, and everybody knows that that person is just kind of a drain, 
uh, that they are constantly the naysayer, they're constantly late to work, they're constantly on the phone during the meeting. Uh, if the leader doesn't recognize it and, and change it quickly, that is probably more damaging to a team than uh, being slow to hire. So rule number one, know thyself. Rule number two, get awesome at putting a team together. Okay, rule number three for how to not suck as a boss. Teach, don't preach. Again, these are things that I have learned through mistake. These are things that I still make mistakes on. Uh, and And these episodes and the things that I post on LinkedIn, it is not a rebuke of other people's leadership. And if anything, it's just a reminder to myself, like, here's what I know, here's what I believe, just kind of, you know, be disciplined back to it. And think about this, like, you know, I put these thoughts out here, um, the people who work with me, and particularly uh, the people for whom I'm their supervisor or leader, they have everything uh, in their hands to be able to hold me accountable to all of this. So, I think that's just kind of a little bonus aside here on how to not suck as a boss, is let other people know what you believe. Um, They're going to hold you accountable to it. They should. And so that's that's part of my motivation here. All right, teach, don't preach. I think that um, you think about mirrors. Mirrors tend to reflect our insecurities. I don't know many people who look forward to turning the mirror on um, or turning the lights on and looking at the mirror as a source of strength, okay? Not not many people naturally think that. I think maybe you can get yourself to there um, and not get to the point of arrogance. I think you can work yourself to, I love what's on the, uh, I love the reflection kind of staring back at me, and that's about self-confidence and self-acceptance. But by, by and large, you know, outside of that kind of uh, self-help work, I mean that when you turn the lights on and you look at the mirror, you see your insecurities first, don't you? I do. I, I, I see my insecurities first. So I think that leaders should not be mirrors to other people. And what I mean by that is that we need to focus more on people's strengths than their weaknesses. As a coach, as a manager, if you want to not suck as a boss, you need to focus on people's strengths. Uh, make their strengths better um, and, and kind of de-emphasize the weaknesses. You know, focus maybe... 80-20 on that. 80, 80% on strengths, 20% on weaknesses. Now, it doesn't mean that if you have underperformers on the team or if you have uh, people who are not part of, you know, moving forward with the culture, they're, uh, you know, they're resistant to it, they're, you know, all of those things. You know, I'm not saying the same thing here. I'm not saying focus on 80% of the strength of somebody who's not wanting to be a part of the team, right? So earlier, like three minutes ago, I was talking about, um that, that leaders have the responsibility of curating their team, and they have to get rid of the people on that team that are not contributing to the culture, right? Um, so with those people, it's not, you know, you're not focused 80% on their strengths. That's, that's just, I don't think that's very honest and sincere. But I mean that the people that you legitimately feel like, okay, they're on this team, they're part of the long-term future, 80-20 strengths to weaknesses, Coaches tend to, or or bad coaches tend to focus on weakness. They tend to focus on, hey, you know, last week we talked about you're not doing X, Y, and Z great. Let's go back to X, Y, and Z. Let's build that skill. Well, maybe ABC instead is what you should be focused on. You know, when you lift people's strengths, um, 
it over and most of the time it's going to overcome their weaknesses. You're not going to get unicorns on the team all the time. You're just not going to get people that are great at every single thing. I mean, who who is that person? Um, what you what you should do is to figure out. Hey, Bob. Here now, I'm using Bob in a good context. Bob has really really great strengths. Here here's eighty percent of him, and here are the strengths that fall into that category. Susan compliments his weaknesses because those are her strengths. You know, it sounds simple, it sounds basic, but in practice, we don't do that very often as leaders. Um, So, you know, there's my challenge to you. Teach, don't preach. When you're preaching, you're you're just going to individual people and saying, hey, you're you're bad at this, you're you're pretty okay at this, but let's fix the bad. And then you just kind of keep going down the line and and you have that kind of preaching one-on-one visit with people. But I think a really great leader, think about a basketball coach. A basketball coach doesn't need five people on the floor that can all shoot three-pointers, right? So if in practice they went and said, hey, you know, seven-foot-two center, go work on your three-pointers. You really suck at three-pointers. And then they went to every position and was like, hey, your three-point percentage in the last game was 5%. Come on, let's get that up, right? It sounds ridiculous. You wouldn't have a, a, a team of uh, players that, that all are 90% three-point shooters. You would have one or two or three on the roster, and then the rest you're going to complement their strengths to, to their weaknesses, right? When I talk about it in a sports context, even if you don't follow sports, I think you intuitively get, no, you don't need five people on the floor that can all shoot threes. Same thing for a professional team. You don't need a team of people that are all good at all the same things. Um, So when you focus on people's weaknesses, first ask, you know, does it serve their, um, does it, does it, is it to their benefit that they improve this weakness? If it is, great. Um, But if you can fill that weakness by somebody else's strength on the team, that's the way to go, right? I want somebody who's great at three points. I want somebody who's great at blocking and defending. I want somebody who's awesome at passing the ball and directing, you know, the offense. You know, these are things that you would do as a coach, but how often do we think that way as leaders in senior living? That's, That's where I'm going with this. Along with that, I think that it is it is really a non-issue for me. Uh, like it, it's not up for debate that that leaders have to have the skill set of training and coaching and development. That 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 learning and development is not a department. It is a skill that all leaders should have. So you know, a lot of leaders may think I'm just kind of good at this. I've I've learned it over time. You know, I know what works for me, and this is the type of leader I want to be. BS. You you need to open the books. I mean literally open the books. Go take a class on it. Uh, LinkedIn has all these great courses that you can access about uh, adult learning. And I'm not saying you're going to, you know, go off from your path as the COO and, uh, and, and carve out a path in learning and development. I just mean that you need to go learn that skill. If you fundamentally kind of understand basic adult learning theory, right? How do adults learn? How do groups learn? What is social learning versus formal learning? You know, if you can understand um, some basic kind of buckets of how people learn within professional organizations, it will make you a better leader. 
when you do your one-on-one coaching sessions with your direct reports, if you're just kind of going based on your gut feeling of how to conduct those meetings, but you're not doing a lot of prep going into that from a learning perspective, you're leaving some coaching on the table. You're leaving some performance on the table if you are not improving your own skill. So rule number three, teach, don't preach. Okay, we're going to keep going with this rhyming motif a little bit. Rule number four, heart before smart. Kind of goes back to the earlier kind of um, introduction to this episode about warmth before competence. But, you know, here's my version of it, heart before smart. Um, If you show that you care, you're building trust. If it takes you 30 days, if it takes you 90 days, if it takes you a year, whatever it's going to take you, well, I take that back. It shouldn't take you a year to build rapport and trust with somebody. But let's just say, you know, your first 30 days on the job, you need to disproportionately put attention into building relationships and conveying warmth uh, before you flex your competence. Um, it, th- this is definitely something that I've uh, messed up in the past. And, I, and I, again, I, I think I continue to make this mistake in particular. And if you really think about where that comes from, um, you know, there are some positive potential motivators to it. Maybe, you know, you see urgency in the work and you want to contribute, you know, right away to, to the team and you feel like they're doing great work. You just want to jump in and, and be a part of it. Fine, that sounds positive. But at the end of the day, you know, if you use that um, why shovel, right? If you keep asking yourself why, 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 and you dig down, and you, if you can trace that to some kind of an insecurity, right? Well, I'm flexing my competence because I want people to feel like I deserve to be here. That's a, sure, that's a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate insecurity. But if you're, if you're informing uh, your relationships from that place of insecurity, then you're projecting your stuff onto other people, right? And that is a really great way to suck as a boss. So um, heart before smart just means that once you've established your warmth, your strength is reassuring to other people rather than threatening. So you're, you're definitely going to screw up on this. I, I do. But here's the thing. When you do screw up on that, when you make your mistake, broadcast it. Normalize it. Let people know, yes, we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. And I don't mean that in lip service. Here's how I actually made this mistake. And I just want to talk through it. Apologize when, whenever you can. Apologies do not make you a weak leader. It makes you um, self-aware, right? And it makes you better at, at the, the social um, regulation within your team. So you are going to make a mistake. And when you do, as a leader broadcast it. Broadcast it to your team. And I don't mean talk about your mistakes so often that people don't have confidence in you anymore, but where it really matters. Um, you know, I think you need to expose that, that vulnerable side of you if you want it from other people. If you expect your direct reports to be vulnerable with you and you never are, think about how crazy that sounds. Like if you were in a personal relationship with somebody and, and they expected you to tell them your fears, your concerns, and to be vulnerable with them, and they never gave that to you in return, how long does that relationship feel equal, right? In, in the professional sense, um, 
we 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 do that all the time especially as leaders we tell them we tell our direct reports be vulnerable let's talk about your weaknesses let's talk about the things that you need to improve and we never talk about what we are working to improve with others so this is part of it heart before smart and it kind of relates to teach don't preach so if if you're doing all of these things together you're going to you're going to have a much better chance of not sucking as a boss all right, number five, there are six of these, uh, so we're going to work through it quickly now. I know I'm taking up uh, quite a bit of your morning. All right, number five, 80-20, the 80-20 rule. Um, there's a, gosh, I wish I would have written down um, where this comes from, but there there is some kind of a principle uh, here, and, and I think it starts as an economic principle, um, and then it kind of has has played into you know the, the, these type of uh, phrases. But the 80-20 rule of uh, leadership basically means that you're going to get 80% of productivity from 20% of input. Um, that sounds pretty crazy and outlandish, but um, this has played out in multiple, multiple, multiple studies. Um, if you think about like 80-20 rule of uh, products on your um, in, in your company, like you, you're going to get 80% of profits and um, sales from 20% of your products, right? So you're going to get 80% of productivity from 20% of your team. Um, you're going to get 80% of performance from the tw- from 20% of somebody's skill sets. Like you know, I, I realize these are generalizations, but over time, these things kind of play true. And so, so where I'm going with this is that as a leader, 80% of your effectiveness is going to come from 20% of your kind of highest skill sets. So let's, let's follow that 80-20 thread into just a couple examples here. Meetings. How many people love meetings? Meetings kind of suck for, for the most part. And, and the reason that they suck is because the person putting the meeting together has not really thought through what is the purpose of this. And again, if you're not teaching yourself, if you're not learning the skills of coaching and development, if you're not learning the skills of facilitation, you know, uh, training facilitation, that's what meetings are, right? If you're meeting for an hour with your team, whether in person or Zoom, you're asking for their investment of time and that it is more valuable than what they would be doing otherwise, right? Just that's what we're implying if we're doing a meeting. This is more valuable than what you're going to do on your own. So if that is the case, the leader who's facilitating that has to put a lot of work into it. 80% prep, 20% meeting. That's kind of my thought. That's my rule on that, is that um, I have a weekly um, sales training that I do with my team uh, in the organization. We spend about an hour together on Monday afternoons. The 80-20 rule basically means if I'm asking for one hour from our sales directors, roughly, I'm going to put about four hours worth of prep into that. And I don't mean just in one sitting, like I'm sitting for four hour blocks and preparing for the sales training. But incrementally over the, 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 the previous week, I'm going to chunk time together to really think about what value am I going to give to the sales directors in that hour. And typically, it's going to take me about a four to one ratio uh, of prep going into it. So maybe that's, you know, pulling the right statistic, 
Maybe that's having a conversation with somebody ahead of the meeting to say, hey, this was something that, um, that you experienced that I think is relevant to other people. Would you mind talking about it? And here, let's kind of discuss it before we get on the call. All of those little things put together roughly amounts to about four hours of prep to one hour of meeting. So, leader, think about it this way. If you can't invest the four hours to prep for the meeting, don't do the meeting. Don't do the meeting because the opportunity cost is they, the, the, the people that you're asking to be a part of the meeting could be doing something really productive with that time. So if you're going to ask for that hour, put your prep into it. Another 80-20 kind of rule here uh, coming from the sales world, 80% listening, 20% reflective speaking. I think sometimes people think about that rule, and sometimes it's 70-30, sometimes it's 80-20, but the basic principle here is that you listen more than you speak. I think sometimes leaders hear this wrong. Uh, 80%, let me let others talk, and then in my 20%, I'll get to speak. When I say 20% reflective speaking, I mean that you have actively taken the input from other people, and that your speaking is going to reflect that. So if you're just waiting your turn to speak to to be impactful, that's that's not you know that's not uh, not sucking as a boss. That's that's just that's the opposite actually, um, because others will you know people are smart. They they kind of get like okay, James isn't really listening. He's just he's he's doing the eighty twenty thing. He's letting us talk for forty minutes, but we know his agenda is going to come in the last twenty minutes, right? Um, that's not good. People will kind of train to that, and they're going to tune you out right as, right as you start speaking. 80% means um, fa- facilitating um, that, that listening skill set in others. And one of the things I've done uh, in the past to, to facilitate that is I used to have a rule as an executive director that if you come to a meeting, you leave your phones and your laptops. Um, I'm going to give you breaks. I'm going to give you time to step away from this meeting uh, to answer that, everyone knows what room we're in. If there's an emergency, everybody knows, come here. But we are going to give each other our time. We're going to give each other our undivided attention. Um, and that means no technology in the room. Okay? I don't know if that, so- if that sounds extreme, but it, but it worked for us. Um, so if, if you're going to have active listening skill sets as a leader, you have to facilitate active listening in other people right, on your team. So that's rule number five. There's a lot of different applications of 80-20, but think about it this way, that 80% of results are going to come from 20% of factors of input. So figure out what those 80-20 ratio things are within your team and within your own um, leadership style and focus intently on that 20%. All right, rule number six, this is last one. Know thyself. I know I already said that, but you know I, I did say it's first, foremost, and final. So this is final. It's going back to where I started. Rule number six, a separate rule. Know thyself. Go back to rule one. As a leader, I think it is so important that we are constantly improving ourselves. And that doesn't have to happen in a vacuum. It doesn't have to happen in a retreat that is confidential and you know, you never talk about it with other people. Do the work of leadership in full visibility of the people you're leading. I think that's a really great role. 
I'm doing that right now. I'm talking about these things in a podcast that'll live forever and ever. Uh, it's a digital, you know, recording, and anybody can pull it up. Particularly, my my team members can pull it up. My direct reports can pull it up. They can look at things that I've put on LinkedIn, and they can hold my feet to my own fire. They can hold me accountable to the things that I believe. And again, I'm not going to be perfect, but I am doing the work of leadership development in full visibility of those that it impacts. And I think that that's something that leaders just need to get better at. We need to show other people that that self-work is a part of leadership. It is not about having the best ideas. It is about saying, I'm working on myself, and it's okay for other people to work on themselves too. I'm going to end here on kind of a component of know thyself. It's make decisions as if others can hear you. Make decisions as if the people that this decision is going to impact can hear you discussing it right now. Doing the right thing always, always happens in private first. Doing the right thing in public, doing the right thing in front of other people is easy. It is not hard. It is not difficult to do the right thing in front of other people. I think generally people want to be good. And in front of others, we're, we're generally going to be, you know, uh, okay at doing the right thing. But doing the right thing always happens in private first. Here's what I mean by that. If you're making a decision and it's going to impact somebody on your team, and in particular, it's going to impact them negatively, discuss that as if that person can hear you. Um, I don't know where this came from. Maybe it was Disney or Apple, um, but but there was a there, there's a kind of a, a prominent CEO of an organization that's wildly successful, at least financially. Um, but they have a rule that in their boardroom, in their C-suite room, they leave a seat open for the customer. So if there's a meeting of nine people, there's going to be a tenth chair in the room, and everybody's been trained to kind of think of that's our stakeholder that is not in this room that is represented by that empty chair. So as we're talking, let's reference, sometimes literally, like let's reference there's an empty chair. Let's think about um, our decision from that person's perspective. I love that. And I think that's where, where this is also coming from. Make a decision with that empty chair in mind, with the empty chair being filled uh, metaphorically by the by the person that it impacts. So uh, let me try to come up with a specific example here. Bonus. You know, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the year. Um, hopefully, you have a bonus plan that's very objective, that's, you know, here are the kind of stipulations. There's no favoritism that's going to show uh, on the bonus distribution uh, in the first of the year. But let's say that you're, you're discussing, hey, does Bob deserve a 20% bonus? Does he deserve a 10% bonus? And you're just discussing it. You're like, well, you know, Bob just, you know, he did okay. His performance was there, but he just really kind of just, he, he really messed up on, you know, these things. Um, you know, let, let, let's give him a smaller bonus. I think it's a signal to him that he needs to work harder, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you're having that conversation, you're assuming that Bob cannot hear you, right? So you're making a decision as if Bob can't hear you making that decision. So my rule here is discuss it as if Bob can hear you, right? Say the things out loud that that if Bob were in the room, you'd be mostly having the same conversation. And I get that leaders are not are, are sometimes going to have to have private conversations, uh, you know, 
offline, I, I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm saying, that everything has to be transparent. But I think the process has to be transparent, right? Make decisions as if uh, the person that it affects can hear you making that decision. And as a second part of that, doing the right thing always happens in private before it happens in public. So there it is. You know, there, there are my six rules on how to not suck as a boss. Rule number one, know thyself. No, rule number two, get awesome at putting a team together. Rule number three, teach, don't preach. Four is heart before smart. Rule number five has to do with the 80-20 principle. And then rule number six, know thyself. That one shows up on, uh, on the list twice for good reason. Join me next week. We're going to talk about the business intelligence side of how to not suck as a boss. Um, and I'm going to share with you a little bit of my vision of senior living. Um, so we've talked through all of the soft stuff, all of the skills that, um, that I think, again, are multipliers. Uh, these are the things that multiply what I'm going to talk about next week on the business intelligence side. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about revenue. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, technology. We're going to talk a little bit about um, how we get the, the best talent on the team, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about a lot of practical things, which is which is a little bit different from these kind of qualitative topics that I tend to focus on. Uh, but again, a balanced leader is gonna be able to go back and forth between the two. So I'm gonna put my you know money where my mouth is, and next week's episode we're gonna dig into business intelligence and my vision, my personal vision of what I think senior living can look like in the future as we come out from COVID and 2020. Thank you for joining me this week for an episode of Bridge the Gap Contributor Wednesdays. Have an amazing week. I hope you're having a great holiday season with your loved ones. Looking forward to talking to you again next week. Have an awesome day. Thanks for listening to Contributor Wednesday series on Bridge the Gap Network. For more information about the contributors and for a full library of episodes, visit btgvoice.com.